Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at NortheastScene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. everybody and welcome to the northeast scene podcast this is keith and tommy and we're back with a fresh new episode and tonight on the show joseph grillo of garrison tommy garrison has a reissue of the band before the break coming out on iodine recordings we're very excited to hear that joe also has a new band judas knife they're going to be playing their first show soon so we're going to hear about that and there's going to be Many amusing anecdotes and stories and tales. That I can guarantee you. I love it. Yes. Folks, in a rare switch of events here tonight on the show, Tommy is shook. Yo. Tommy is stressed out, and I am not. And in in a in caring relationship fashion, I have swooped in to, to be the calm and collected person and help Tommy through this this trying time. Tommy, tell the people what's going on. Yeah, so... Life has been uh, hectic for a couple reasons, but mainly because I started back to school and we have had, without saying numbers, we've had numerous COVID positive cases and my school is officially shut down and going back to remote learning for the next three days at the least. So, Oh, it's only the next three days? Yeah. So what they're doing is they are waiting for positive results or negative results, hopefully, from a a handful of kids. Um, They are also giving people some time to go home and then monitor their children to see if they exhibit any symptoms like, you know, loss of smell or fever, sore throat, that kind of stuff, and allow them to get tested. So if they did contract it, um, they're able to stay home and quarantine uh, and hopefully avoid any future infections. But I know that's unrealistic. But my night has been filled with uh, traffic and parent phone calls who are uh, absolutely 100% warranted in being like upset. Like they don't know what's going on, why it's going on, what's what's happening with their student. And um, I think as a parent, if I was in the same situation, I'd be calling people as well. So it is frustrating while I'm trying to like make dinner and help the kids and unpack and honestly to set up for tomorrow's classes that I'm going to have in my basement. It's been a little trying and Keith could hear it when I got on and he said uh, something to me. I, I, you know, I said, what's the funniest thing that's happened in the last two days. And he told something that, that, that made me laugh. And I was like, you know what, let me take some deep breaths get my shit together and do the show because that's what this show is about. Like, I mean, think about this. Like we had shows where there was, you know, eight inches of snow outside and you go see a fucking amazing band and 
30 people would be there. Like we power through shit. Like that's what we do. So here we are. Yeah, because this show is not only the cutting edge destination for bands new and old. This show is also the journey of our lives. I mean, think about everything we've been through since we started this show, Tommy. Had a baby. You had a baby? Well, I I didn't have one, but <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Your wife had a baby. <laughs> you you uh participated in the birthing of a child. Yeah. We made the show weekly. The show happened. There was a worldwide pandemic, uh, relationships, breakups, heartache, triumph. You never know what's going to happen. I could tell as soon as you logged on that something was wrong. It was just like the energy. I, I could feel it. I actually, and this is me being like 100% transparent, there was a part of me on the way home while I was sitting in traffic. It was like 4.45. I'm sitting in traffic on Route 1. And I was so mad. I was like, I just, I just need to do something that's not show related or th- try not to think about the show. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, I'll just listen to music. Well, the music makes me think about the show. Like that's what the <laughs> show is a fucking about. And then I was like, okay, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call somebody. I'm going to call somebody. They're not going to talk about music. So I actually, I, I, I rarely do this. I called my mom and I was like, mom, how you doing? She's like, I'm good. You know, we had a like back and forth conversation about what she did today. I forgot she was at my house today. She watched my kids for a little bit. Kelly had a doctor's appointment. So she was like, oh, I love that I got to see the baby. And she did, and she started talking about the kids. And I was just like, you know what? This is all minuscule. All the things I'm upset about, the traffic in front of me, the parents, the pandemic, the COVID cases, the switch to remote learning, it's all pales in comparison to the fact that we're alive, we're here today, we get to talk about fucking rad music, and on top of that, I get to do it with one of my best friends. So fuck off everybody else, here we are. (laughs) This is what we got, so... This is a healthy, that's a healthy attitude. Because imagine if you had to do all that shit and there was no show. You just watch a sitcom or something. That would fucking suck. Well, it would, it would suck for me. I need, I need to be doing something that feels significant to me, whatever that may be. I, I had an old student. She was picking up her younger sister Thursday of last week and she was wearing a friend's hoodie. Do you know that's like popular now? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, I, I walked right up to her and I was like, Oh, you watched that show? And she looked right at me and she goes, oh, no, that show's terrible. (laughs) I was like, good girl. It's not a funny show. Like, I don't understand. I have, well, we've talked about this before. I have a sister that I don't really speak to terribly often or ever. She's a huge fan. She tried to convince me that Big Bang Theory was funny. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not. If you need a laugh track, it's not a funny show. No. You just, it's not funny. It's not a funny show. I mean, I don't like sitcoms in general. I like older ones that I watched, but it just doesn't do it for me. I think a lot of the shows that I like that I go back to are things that are tied to memories. Like I liked Taxi because I watched I watched Taxi with my mom, like with my mom, and I thought that was funny um, because like you know there was jokes in there I didn't get, and I knew my mom laughed at them, so I'm like, ooh, like that's something I should know about, but I'll laugh with her. But like, yeah. I actually had that thought the other day, like we, we talked about this before is that we've talked about this before. Like I brought something up on the last show and I was like embarrassed. I was by myself. (laughs) I was in the shower and I was like, 
ew, you brought up that story before. <laughs> it was like a story. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. If someone's like a real listener of this show, like and they listen like fairly often, they heard that story before. And they're they're hitting that like skip 15 seconds button, like, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, well, listen, we're only we're two individuals and we only have a finite amount of experiences that we can share. So and this is a weekly show. I mean, what are we gonna do? So Anyway, Tommy, by the time this show is done being recorded, I think you're going to feel a lot better. It's going to be exciting talking to Joe, and I'm doing okay. You know, things are actually really boring right now, Tommy. There's Everything's fine. There's no controversies. Work is good. Podcast good. Life good. And you know what? I love it. I want things to be boring. I actually... I always think about you're going to get a phone call someday that's going to throw a wrench into the boring. I absorb the boring. I love the boring because... It's predictable. Yeah, I'm living it up right now. I love this. The hardest thing I have to decide each weekend is what video games to play. That's a that's a f- that's a phenomenal problem to have. Yeah, yeah. And believe me, there's a lot of them. A lot. I'm playing too many. I have a spread. I have a running spreadsheet of all the games I've played this year, and I'm currently playing. I'm close to thirty. Really? Yeah. If you had to pick only two of them, what would they be? Okay, well, my favorites were Last of Us 2 and Final Fantasy VII Remake. All the other stuff is, well, it's a combination of PC stuff, NES, those games aren't long, PlayStation 4 stuff, you know, it's a, it's a good mix. But listen, we're, we're out of time for this first segment. Check in back with us after we talk to Joe. We have some more exciting things planned for you. But right now, we're going to talk to Joseph Grillo. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now. With Joseph Grillo. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. So I have to ask, how are you doing today? Today? Uh, today's pretty good. I'm normally a little bit sleep deprived. Um, it's just sort of the what I work under. I've um, My son has some sleeping issues. So I'm normally, if he sleeps the night, I'm up at 5.30 every morning. If he doesn't sleep the night, I'm up at between 1.30 and 2 in the morning. So today's one of those 2 a.m. mornings. But, you know, sleep deprivation is the cheapest drug. So I am high (laughs) all the time for free. That's beautiful. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before we hit record. You've got twins, twin six-year-olds. I do. I do. Yeah, one boy, one girl. And it's fantastic. But it's crazy. I actually used to say this when I I started a new job. Uh, I went from working at a law firm to uh, teaching middle school. And uh, the, the year I worked started teaching was the year my daughters were born and they they're about to turn eight at the end of november Congratulations! thank you so much and i remember uh i walked into work one day and the lady who was like the supervisor of like all the the math team was like hey how are you doing today i'm like i just realized how much money i could have saved on alcohol and drugs if i had just realized (laughs) i didn't have to sleep and she was like Okay, go be in charge of children now. <laughs> it's like, look, I'm sorry. Like, it, it, you you have auditory hallucinations. You hear things that aren't there. You see things that aren't there. You constantly feel like you're slightly dizzy. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. It's like you're three beers deep, 24 hours a day. It's amazing. Yeah, but but you also get the mood swings. So you're oh, like, yeah. you're like, everything's awesome, man. Why? Why is it so? <laughs> Difficult. Why does everybody hate me? Who's looking at me? No, things are great. Things are fucking cool. 
Why is everything why is everything broken? Who took yeah. <laughs> everything out? Why is everything on the That's what I walk upstairs yeah. when I when I'm done this podcast. Mm-hmm. I I do this in the basement. So we have a finished basement at our house. So I walk up the stairs and it's all nice and clean in the basement. Everything's squared away and then I walk up the steps onto Legos and dolls and hairbrushes and I'm like what happened up here? <laughs> Did you you guys take out everything you own and just leave it on the floor? Like, did you know I was coming up in the dark or what's going on? What if you just never cleaned up? I hate to say this. It just gets worse. Yeah. (laughs) You end up with piles on piles. Like you think like, Mm -hmm. oh, that can't get worse. It can. Uh, You can spill food in it. You can get crumbs in it. Oh, yeah. The the food, you got to avoid the food messes because that's when creatures come in and nobody wants that. Have you seen a child eat? <laughs> My daughter ate goldfish the other day, like the two-year-old, like almost two-year-old, stuffed goldfish in her mouth, and literally entire goldfish like are just falling out of her mouth as she's slamming her palm into her face, smushing them in. I'm like, oh, okay, that's just happening now. We'll get the oh, we'll get the vacuum out. I I feel your pain. That's all I can say because I know it, <laughs> gentlemen. I do not envy you. I have zero children, and I do intend to keep it that way. That's fine. I, yeah, I'm not a, you know, I, I have to say I'm not a big, like, proponent of, like, everyone should have kids, man. It changes your life. It does change your life. But yeah, I, I don't think it's for everybody. Um, no. Oh, God. And, no. and I couldn't have done it, you know, I didn't become a dad until I was 41, and I would have been a horrible father in in my 20s, you know? So I think that that I finally hit a point in my life where I'm like, you know what? I'm ready to take on this challenge and chapter but i'm not i don't think it's you know no not everybody should you don't have to yeah that is a good point and i never say never because you know i I definitely would have been a bad father in my 20s and my 30s too probably Mm -hmm. but i feel like now i'm in a place where i could do it i don't think i want to but never say never who knows yeah i think the one thing about having kids that kind of balanced me out was you and Joseph, you kind of hit this, like you have these weirdly like high dizzying kind of parts where you're like, this is amazing. This is the best thing in the world. The kids are so much fun and I can't wait to be around them and I'm around them now and they're hugging me and we're having a great time and we're going for a walk and we're playing in the park. And then you also have those moments of like the twins are at each other's throats over you know, a, a, a squishable that they're going crazy over and they have to share it or the baby is doing something crazy and she's like knocked over something or pulled a glass. Like, you know, the, the, the kids are seven. So like they leave glasses out like the, Oh, I left my, my glass of juice out. And they're like, okay, well the baby walked over and pulled that down. And you're like, you go from these, like, this is amazing to, oh, okay. This is, there's a very humbling experience of, trying to balance your emotions in those moments because you don't I, I grew up in a house where my mom was like constantly screaming at us and it's like you know what I don't want to be that parent and you you I honestly remind myself when I'm about to raise my voice like don't there's no point in doing this losing your temper right now one scares the kids you are literally two feet taller than them and weigh a hundred pounds more than them and on top of that, it's not helpful. It doesn't make the situation any better. So taking those that moment of like, not clarity, but kind of introspection of like, all right, I'm going to take a second to just step back. I had to do it with Keith 
like right before we came on here. I was like, he was like, I could hear it in your voice. You're upset. And I'm like, yeah, I need a minute. And I literally just sat here for 30 seconds and went <sighs> and just did deep breathing, like just to kind of center myself because you can't allow those moments of like agitation to rule the way that you're going to, you know, raise your kids. It's, it's, it's really, uh, it's a delicate balance, but no, no, I think it, it forces you, it, it, if you want to be good at it. I mean, the thing is, is I, I knew I was never a parent up until my forties because I knew I'd be good at it and being good at it means sacrifice. Right. And then, and, and extreme sacrifice. And I didn't want to sacrifice when I was younger. And then I just hit a point where it's like, okay, I'm cool with it. But it, it also, um, it makes everything else in your life seem so fucking easy. Like, I mean, like being in a band, how hard is that? How hard is it to get in a van with like three or four other of your friends and just go and have a good time. And yet people in their twenties mess that up all the time. Um, <laughs> or, or it actually, you know, um, friendships that I'd, um, not cared for, or I'd been neglectful to, you know, I think having children and, and sort of like being forced to be in the moment, being forced to be Zen, being forced to be like, I'm not going to scream because that's not helpful. I'm going to do the best thing. I'm going to try and educate them. I'm going to try and take this negative and turn it into a positive, which is what you're constantly doing. Right? So then you, you look, it makes you reflect on your entire life before you were parent and go, Oh man, was I selfish about this, that, and the other thing. Um, and, and maybe I, if I'm lucky enough, if I'm lucky enough, maybe I can address that. Maybe I can actually reconnect with some folks, uh, which I did recently with Garrison, actually, you know, um, you know, with, with some of the guys in the band and talk to them and, and, and really get on the level. And just, I feel, I, I always kind of feel that you spend, you know, you spend your whole life trying to get back to the person you were in the second grade, right? You, you, up until the second grade, it's, this varies from person to person. You didn't have a sense uh, outside of yourself. You just, you know, if you said hi to somebody, you assumed that they saw you the way you saw you. And then you reach this point, And again, it differs for everyone where you suddenly go, oh, oh, people perceive me differently than the way I, I am presenting myself. And it just throws everything out the window. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to get back there where you don't care, where you just walk up and you go, hi. And, and you know what I mean? And, and you, you, you just try and be who you are. And so I feel like I've been, you know, especially recently in my interactions with a lot of my adult friends, uh, especially people that I've known for decades, getting back to that sort of person who I was in the second grade, which I love. That's interesting. Yeah. I, cause I'm, how old are you, Joseph? I'm 47. Okay, so I'm 39, and so is Tommy, mm -hmm. and I'm coming to that same realization lately. I just care a lot less about trying to be quote-unquote cool or putting out some image that I think I need to be. I am getting back to the roots of what I enjoyed when I was young. I, I like the things I like, I talk to the people I talk to, and I don't really give a crap about anything else. That's wonderful. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's great. So there's a... There's a um, uh, it's something to attain and something to nurture. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things about parenting is it is, it is extraordinarily humbling, but at the same time, you actually end up doing a lot of work, not on your children, but on yourself. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an enormous amount of work where you say, I'm, I won't react in the way that I've already been conditioned to, or I've, I've conditioned myself to. Uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of times where I've caught myself in the moment going, I'm ready to raise my voice or I'm ready to say something and go, take a second, 
take a beat, take a moment, step back and really think about this situation because I know that there were things, and I'm sure we all have these moments where somebody said something to you when you were seven, eight, nine years old, and it stuck with you forever. Yeah. And I consistently go back to those things and go, I may be putting a permanent indelible mark on my child, and I want to make sure what it is is positive. This has been another episode of the Parenting Podcast <laughs> with Keith and Tommy. <laughs> no. They'll be really happy when they understand compounded interest and, and how credit cards work. Exactly. Look, you know what I mean? They're, they're, <laughs> so they're way ahead of the game. Their 401ks will be open when they're 18. Let's That's go. right. Yeah. <laughs> Tommy, if, if there's anything you're going to teach those kids, it's fiscal responsibility. That's a story for another time. But uh, now, Joseph, in, in addition to uh, parenting, you've got a yes. lot of things going on musically. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, a Garrison reissue coming up on Iodine Recordings, the yep. 1999 record, the Ben Before the Break. And mm-hmm. we've got your new band, Judas Knife, who's going to be playing their first show soon. And we're going to get into all that. But mm-hmm. I want to get to know you a little bit first. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Well, I'm an Aries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, yeah. No, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Shrewsbury, actually, a suburb of. But um, Worcester was sort of the background of my childhood. And... Um, my father was an electrician. My mother was a respiratory therapist. She quit when my brother and I were born, so she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I had a very idyllic childhood. Uh, my parents are still together. I adore them. Uh, they were lovely. Um, I have one older brother who I also adore. And growing up in Shrewsbury was was pretty cool. Growing up in the Massachusetts um, school system in the late 70s, throughout the 80s, into the 90s was pretty good. Um, I had some teachers that were sort of collections of nervous tics and some teachers that were phenomenal. But particularly, I had, I had some great music teachers. Now, on the creative side, the creative writing teachers as well were great. So growing up, were you into the arts? Were you always into music? And, you know, there was no, there very, very little music played in my house. Um, my parents weren't into music or really into the arts. I think they they are incredibly supportive of something that they don't understand, mm-hmm. uh, which is something, you know, I aspire to be, you know, I would be on the road somewhere, you know, playing a show with one of my bands, like especially the noisier stuff like gay for Johnny Depp. And they'd be like, we don't get it, but have a great show tonight. Kick ass. And I'm like, thanks mom and dad. Please don't ever come to my shows. Just reiterate it. Never, ever come to my shows. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I discovered music originally through musical theater um, and, and well, what was on the radio. Right. So WAAF in um, Worcester, Boston was like, uh, in the 80s, was a lot of hair metal. And then there was um, BCN, which played a lot of classic rock. So I kind of, and there's all the dance stuff in the 80s, like CNC Music Factory and Paula Abdul and Belle Bivdevo. And and I think that being raised in in Massachusetts in that time, it's hard to imagine. I don't remember a time in my life I didn't know most of the Beatles songs. Uh, I don't remember a time in my life I didn't know, you know, a fair amount of Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin just because it, the Eagles, it's always around you just via osmosis. Um, but it wasn't in the house. Uh, like I said, my parents had, I don't know, maybe 10 records. Um, so I discovered comic books and music around the same time. And then the first thing I listened to that I wasn't spoon fed, right? So I listened to a lot of hair metal you know, I saw Bon Jovi in 1986 on the Slippery When Wet tour. Saw 
Def Leppard a couple times on the Hysteria tour and whatnot. And then I remember discovering Pink Floyd's The Wall. And that album was really monumental to me, especially because it's also very musical theater based um, with all the choral and, and the brass, brass that are part of it. And then I had some friends who not only were into that, my friend Ed, who, who was in Garrison, was into Pink Floyd and we knew each other and we would talk a lot about Pink Floyd. But then I'd listen to The Cure and R.E.M. and all the sort of alternative music to Pesh Mode um, of the 80s. And that got me going to, there was a place in Worcester called The WAG, which is the Worcester Artist Group. And it was uh, an illegal um, warehouse on Harlow Street and they would put on shows. And the shows were not only were there, you know, music shows, but there were art shows and um, poetry and, and it was great. It was really nice to experience that at a young age and to experience art in, um, in the, in, in the full, the full spectrum of it. You know, you'd go to a show, people talk about this a lot about how you'd go to a show and they were really diverse bills, but you know, it would be like a hardcore band, a, a doom goth band, a hippie jam band on the same bill. And it'd be fun and it was all music and it was all different and it all wasn't on the radio and it all wasn't what you were spoon fed from MTV, particularly in the eighties. And so that plus going to see, you know, gallery openings of, of sort of more out there art and stuff that was somewhat comic book and somewhat pornographic and somewhat just being like blown away in, in, you know, the eighth, ninth, 10th grade, um, or going to see, you know, um, performance art, you know, a guy named Bill McMillan from Worcester would do this crazy stuff with a hatchet and a, like a burka and like fake blood. And I just was so enamored with being uh, allowed into this thing that was so different than my upbringing, which, which was very nice and very quaint and very suburban. Um, so that was, that was a huge influence. So what was your thing? Like, uh, I mean, in terms of underground music, what grabbed you? Was it hardcore or post-hardcore? What kind of things were you into? Definitely wasn't hardcore. Yeah, I liked, I liked guitar rock. Uh, I liked alternative music, songs. Um, and I liked, and I still like, everything that hardcore influenced. But I never really liked hardcore itself or punk, really. I just thought it was kind of boring probably because I'd had a musical background and I listened to a lot of prog rock when I was younger, a lot of early Genesis. And, and I thought, I love the energy of punk and I love the energy. The hardcore shows were gorgeous. Like seeing people, the crowd be part of the show was, was really eye-opening. But musically, I didn't enjoy it until I heard sort of the next step forward. You know, I didn't like punk. I liked the replacements, which wouldn't exist without punk. Uh, I didn't like hardcore, but I loved drive like jehu or sonic youth or you know like that wouldn't exist without these hardcore elements so um th those were the thing i i think a guitar rock would be the easiest way to to sort of the umbrella for it so let's talk about the early days of garrison when did you start playing guitar and how did you start playing with other people uh i think i was more inspired by my friends than i was you know any any one band and my my pals were in a band called frozen culture in high school which were kind of a alternative hippie jam band and um and i remember just sitting in the basement you know counts countless hours and watching them play and i think watching my friends do it sort of inspired me that maybe i could do it um and so i started playing i picked up a guitar in uh, 1989 and 
just started playing and I never really, I had maybe about four months of lessons. Um, but mostly what I would do is I would play along to songs. So I'd play along on the radio, um, or, or, you know, my cassette tapes and I'd play along. I wouldn't try and learn the song because I wasn't particularly in- interested. I would try to play notes that sounded like they belonged in the song, you know, like another guitar line over, over that, you know, um, Jane's addiction record or, or that REM record, like something that sounded like it fit. Um, that was sort of more intriguing to me. Yeah, I would learn a piece of a song and then just run with it. Because someone showed me how to read basic tablature, and I was like, wait, it's that easy? Seriously? Oh, maybe mm. I can do this. And yeah, like you said, I was inspired by my friends. I, I happened upon uh, the local hardcore scene, and a, a bunch of my friends were in bands, and they had guitars and amplifiers and played shows, and I was like, holy shit, Like you can really do this? This is something I always wanted to do. So I was really inspired by my friends who were doing it. Where, where are you from? I am. Fr- uh, Tommy and I are from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is just south of Philadelphia. So there's a, there's a ton of bands that, that came out of that area, mm-hmm. hardcore and, and otherwise. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I think guitar is really, it's really forgiving in, in a way that, you know, I, I took violin lessons in the fourth grade and I was so bored because you practice and practice and practice and after a few months you can kind of play Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. Whereas, you know, with guitar, within a couple of weeks or, or a couple of days, you can play some of your favorite songs because they're so simple. You got, oh, I got two chords, I got that change. And it's so, uh, it just keeps you wanting to play more and more. And I think tonally I always wanted to play a guitar that would allow me to write or an instrument that would allow me to write. So guitar seemed like the obvious choice because I didn't like a horn. I didn't like things where only one note. I wanted chords because I wanted the, the sort of color palette of the notes playing off of each other. I think the thing that got me and I, Joseph, I can kind of identify with this is like the guitar parts in songs made me feel a certain way. And mm-hmm. I would hear it and go, I, I need to re- be able to replicate that. And Mm. I think the first one that really got me, I think it was like maybe nine or 10 and I saw Wayne's world. Uh And I remember, I remember hearing the riff for that queen song. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. And it's gorgeous. And I remember hearing that going like, Oh my God, I need to be able to play that. And I remember asking my mother, like right after that, like I need to take guitar lessons. Keep in mind, I had taken piano and I did that Suzuki method where you do piano and violin in tandem. And I was like, I'm not progressing at this at any speed. Can I please do something else? My mom was like, well, you have to take an instrument, so you might as well learn guitar. And I think I made it through two lessons. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I realized recently, I can't believe it. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how late we all sort of have these epiphanies, but I I realized how important um, tone was to me um, and how, the the tone and timbre of guitars and drums and bass uh and, and maybe somewhat distorted vocals really connected to me um i listen to you know on the radio when i'm when i'm driving um now i listen to classical music and i i love the composition of classical music but i'm really not terribly inspired by the tones of a symphony um even if you're sitting at a symphony the the volume's nice i i would prefer to hear one cello play or one violin play than I would a whole symphony because I, the, there's something about the tones and the timbres that, that I'm more likely to get chills from that one sound than I am the, the combination. And I think guitars do that for me. I think that's always, uh, the thing, you know, that, uh, 
that Bach piece, the the cello suite, where mm-hmm. it's a I when I hear that, I do I the the hair on my arm raises up. Oh yeah, it's it's an incredible thing. Although I have heard a piece, it is it's a Mozart piece recently, mm-hmm. uh, it's Symphony Twenty Nine. Mozart wrote that when he was eighteen years old, and then I think about what I was doing at 18. And I know that's not fair to compare yourself. (laughs) I know people's life expectancy was probably 54 years old at that point in time. So people lived a little bit differently. You're comparing yourself to somebody that was probably uh, moderately autistic and was tortured by his father in a world where it's not like he had World of Warcraft to keep him distracted. Precisely. (laughs) But again, I had that moment of like, uh, someone who's barely an adult made this absolutely exquisite thing that you just sit back and go this is it's beautiful like it's it conjures those things of like uh you know that scene in ferris bueller where they're like walking through the art museum and they're playing the music behind like it's that thing of like god this is what culture really is like this is exposure this is beautiful like and at the same time i go there's a kind of moment of there are really true geniuses among us (laughs) like people that can create this ultimate like just things that are just gorgeous but i don't know how many were really exposed to well music music is yeah i mean well there's only so much documentation right but um you know music was the first language right so you know before we had words there were sounds and it's which is why it's universal um and why you know so many people from from different uh, ethnicities or cultures or backgrounds or geography can hear you know, Pablo Casales play the cello and we all just kind of stop. We're like, whoa. Or you hear Sam Cooke sing and you just stop and you're like, oh, I, 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 this is just awe-inspiring, you know? Um, and it's great. You know, I, I think that, you know, that that's why I still, I still get so jazzed about music. I, I'm, uh, I pardon the pun. Uh, music <laughs> is just so, it, it's so, uh, it just keeps giving. And the more, the more, you know, the more there is to know, you know? Um, and so I'm just, I've been, I don't know, been on a super posy kick as of late. So when did you start playing in front of people? What kind of bands were you in and what kind of bands were you playing with? Well, I'd performed a lot of theater, um, in musical theater, probably from the fourth grade on. So I, I was used to performing in front of like anywhere from six to 800 people with that. And then, so, so getting in front of a crowd was easy, but it was, it was never quite as satisfying as, as making, as composing my own music. I guess I started playing music in front of people, uh, maybe senior year of high school, um, first year of college. And, or that I felt that my music was good enough to, <laughs> it wasn't, but I felt that it was good enough to be heard by other people. And that was, some um, you know, I, I, I'd play, I did play the wag once. Um, and then some, open mic nights i'd play acoustic guitar and sing songs or and then i for a little while i was playing with a cello player you know and we we perform coffee shops you know in in the seacoast of new hampshire to like 10 people while you get interrupted when every time somebody makes a cappuccino um <laughs> <laughs> how old are you when you're doing this type of stuff because say 17 18 19 see i think that's incredible because i i always wanted to play so badly in front of people and I really love it when people just take the initiative and get out there and do it. Like you're playing open mics by yourself acoustically or with a cello player. And I don't know, I was too afraid to do it until I was 24 when I could finally join a band. 
Well, you know, the funny thing about that is you always feel, and it seems so silly in retrospect, right? But, but we all, and I think it's a collective thing. We all have imposter syndrome and we all feel like we're, we're too late. You know, we're behind the eight ball. You know, I didn't start Garrison until I was 23 and I thought it was so old, Yeah. you know, and, and before that I'd had a, a sort of a, you know, math prog rock emo band called Stricken for Catherine with these really marathon, marathon like songs. And I'd done that. And then, you know, Garrison was at 23. So I didn't start touring until I was 23 outside of New England. And again, I, I felt like I was, I was getting, you know, getting past my prime. And it's also indicative of the city you live in. I mean, one of the main reasons I moved to New York City from Boston was I felt in Boston, my whole peer group sort of at the age of 26 coupled up and moved off to the suburbs, you know, and that I was at 26, I'm the old guy at the basement show. And it felt really weird. And whereas, you know, I'd go to New York and you'd run into somebody and they were like 38 and a sculptor. And that was completely acceptable. And I thought that's, I, I want to be here. And so I think the main reason that the thing about New York that pulled me to it was, was the, the fact that my lifestyle would fit into the, the, the overall um, presence of that city. So let's talk about the early days of Garrison. How did it come together and how did things start picking up? Garrison was myself and Ed McNamara, my childhood friend. And Ed had had a sort of really epic math rocky band called um, Iris. And I had stricken for Catherine. And then we both kind of came to the decision that we were a little tired of this really long we were all trying to be rodan basically and bitch magnet um those bands you know like really long epic pieces and we weren't really quite good enough to do it but we wanted to write something with a little bit more pop i guess and so garrison was sort of our version of a pop band and because he and i had known each other for so long we had such a common vocabulary and he had been in bands he was in that band frozen culture that inspired me when i was a kid so i always kind of looked up to him he's quite a role model as far as his his um guitar playing and his songwriting and his voice. And so we started playing together in spring of 1998. And then, you know, we were really industrious. He'd, he had done um, a, a venue in Worcester, Massachusetts called The Space. Um, that was his brainchild. And he, he, he had sort of spearheaded that, which was uh, taking the inspiration from the wag and sort of pushing it forward. And then Stricken for Catherine's last show was on June 28th the summer of 98 and Garrison's first show was on June 29th, summer of 98. And I just remember we had a East coast tour booked before our first show. We'd made demo tapes. We would recorded them with Kurt Ballou in, in his basement in Alston. And we went to dollar a pound and got a bunch of shirts and screen printed a bunch of shirts with Garrison on it. We just, we wanted to do this and we were, we were hungry for it. So we got out, we made demo tapes. We sent them out to every record label uh, we went on a 10-day East Coast tour, and then by August, uh, we'd come back and Revelation Records had left a message on my voicemail and said they wanted to talk more. So it sounds like you had all the connections and all the pieces in place already. I mean, Garrison's first show is the day after your last band, and you've already got a, a tour booked. Well, the tour was booked, the tour was booked because of Kurt, actually. Um, he and I had met each other because stricken for Catherine played with his old band, the Huguenots who I adored. And, um, we just became fast friends because we recognized that we're both absolute geeks. 
And um, <laughs> and we we would write letters back and forth when I was living up in New Hampshire. And he sent me a list of like all the contacts down the East Coast. Like, you know, this is who you call in Vermont uh, when you want to play Burlington at 242. This is who you talk to in North Carolina, you know, um, which was incredibly helpful. And, and, and we wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for his um, help. He, he's He's quite, you know, having listened to a lot of podcasts of a lot of folks from from the Merrimack Valley, like the Caban guys and Piebald guys. I think that Kurt was a a lot more than he would probably ever give himself credit for. I think he was really the impetus for that whole scene because he was a little bit older and he would grab those guys and be like, hey, you want to be in a band with me? We're called 7% Solution. Okay, let's do this. Uh, You want to be in a band? We're called the Huguenots. Let's do this. And, And they would be like, okay, cool. And I think that he was really far more important um, than, than people may ever know to the inspiration of, of the scene that was maybe just a year or two younger than he is. Yeah, that's interesting. I wanted to bring that up and how Garrison fit into all that, because the number of amazing bands that have come from that area, like the, mm-hmm. the list just goes on and on to this day. Yeah, well, there's something in the water. I don't know. <laughs> one of our uh, one of our other guests said the same exact thing and i agreed <laughs> it's an interesting place you know boston's a a lovely little town with a gigantic chip on its shoulder and worcester is something else i could go on and on about worcester but i won't bore you but i think right time right place i think i think that there was something going on where where there was competition a healthy amount of competition between the bands there was enough younger people that were excited to see it. So there was an infrastructure. It just wasn't the artists. It was all the people going to the shows, you know, and, and there were people doing zines and there were people, uh, I mean, Brian McTurn, good Lord. I mean, he was up there recording with Salad Days. He was, you know, Rama was putting out records with Big Wheel. Like, you know, um, there was so much stuff going on, Aaron Turner, that that further inspired you. You know, so, so you know, if you're, if you're, your peers put out a record you go maybe i can do that you know seven inch and everything's the next step right and then and you go okay and if your peers can record on two inch tape with somebody you can do that you don't have to record on a you know a four track anymore and then if your peers can you know maybe get signed quote unquote signed to an international label then maybe you can do that you know and and then like and we were like oh god wouldn't it be amazing to you know later record with jay robbins and you know, um, I think Mahmood had his number. He was like, yeah, here, call him. And we're like, well, no, no, no. He's, he's like out of our scene. He's like, he's a, he's a famous person that was in Jawbox. Like, we can't talk to him. And they were like, wait, why can't we? Yeah, let's call him. You know, and so, so that sort of, that feeling was really alive in, you know, that I can recall at, at that time in my, in my mid 20s. It's funny that you mentioned that because, that's one thing I learned now with doing this podcast, because I would think the same thing. I'd be like, wait, no, I can't talk to them. They're like, no, no, I, I wouldn't want to bother them. And now it's just like, oh, someone slides me an email. I'm going to sh- take my shot. Because if yeah. you catch the person on the right day, they'll, they're going to say yes. Yeah, and I think most people want to talk. I don't know. Most people like it. I mean, life's pretty interesting, right? And we, we're social creatures, and it's fun to meet new people and talk to them about you know, your experiences. And, and this is great. This is like going to therapy. I get to sit down and talk about my past, myself <laughs> and my feelings. Yeah. How often does, does someone contact you to say, hey, let's sit down for 1.5 hours so you can talk about your life? Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Garrison is together. 
Revelation Records is leaving a, a message on our answering machine. Yeah, yeah. We um we got back to him. Um, Brian McTernan, uh, who was already on the label with his band Battery, and he was recording. He'd recorded um, Texas is the Reason's first seven inch and a bunch of other stuff, but Texas is the big one that he recorded for Revelation. And then uh, he he was a pal of Ed's, and so he um, helped us record more demos. You know, he, he was kind of a scout for Revelation, anyways. Um, and then. Jeff Caudill from Game Face, they were on tour and he was working at Rev. He was doing their art, uh, all their sort of art design stuff. And Game Face were coming through and they were playing downstairs at the Middle East where they were on tour with Get Up Kids, I think. And they called us and said, hey, why don't you open up? You know, and, and it was kind of an, a, a, a chance to have Jeff check us out and make sure it was good for the label. So we kind of had all these things sort of converging at the same time to say to Revelation, Hey, this is a band you should sign because I think the idea too, when we started it and what I was trying to do um, with Ed was you make whatever your project is, you give it kinetic energy. So you let people know, look, look, this is happening with or without you. You get on this train if you want. I'm not going to sit around and wait and pray and be like, oh God, I hope Revelation Records signs me. If you don't sign me, someone else will, and I'm gonna put out records. And if you and if someone else doesn't sign me, I'm gonna put it out myself and it's gonna happen and we're gonna tour and we're gonna play shows and we're gonna see people and we're gonna travel and we're gonna do this. Period. Get on this train if you want. You know, and if you if you present it like that, it's so much more attractive because things with kinetic energy, everybody wants to be a part of it, right? So 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 people sort of gravitate towards it. And I think that, you know, we kind of had that particularly probably because Ed and I had that because we were playing off of each other. So on a microcosm, he and I were inspiring each other to do more, you know, because you can't slack off if you got someone else pushing you. And so if we are doing stuff and then we're doing stuff and then then someone else sees that and goes, oh, wow, these guys are doing stuff. I want to do more stuff with them. It, it kind of snowballs. And then we have the debut record, right? The Ben Before the Break. Now, yep. I remember seeing this record everywhere back in the day. Whenever, whenever I see that record cover, I instantly think of, I was starting a band in 2007, and the, uh -huh. the guy who was trying out on bass, he said, Garrison is my absolute favorite band. This is the record. Check out this record. And I love this record. It, it's got, uh, you know, I think it's very at home on Revelation Records. It's got that post-hardcore quicksand kind of feel with some email elements in there, and, mm -hmm. you know, like Drive Like Jay, who all these elements you described. It's a classic. Oh, shucks. Thanks. <laughs> That's nice of you to say. I mean, it, that was a wonderful record to make. We were really happy. We were really, everything, you know, everything was looking up. Um, it's the first record I did on a international label. I remember thinking to myself when we signed to Revelation, I was like, I'll never have to pay to make another record. <laughs> so not true. But, but it was really, you know, uh, exciting and humbling and awesome. But I think it, it, it really messes with, not messes with your head. It, it, it kind of blows you away for all the good and bad about it. Because remember that record came out and the number that sticks in my head is it sold 6,000 copies the first week. And I, and I just, I was like, I, that means people I don't know are buying the record. And I, it was really hard for me to wrap my head around that. That someone I may have never met listened to my music and it was part of their whatever. Maybe it was, you know, not a big part of their life, but a part of the background. Like that was, that was a sort of a head fuck, but in a beautiful way. And so, yeah, so Garrison puts out that record and so now you got a record distributed internationally you better start touring internationally so we started touring the states i think our first bigger 
our first full tour of the United States was with a band called Boy Sets Fire. Um, oh, yes. Who were great. They were on their In Chrysalis EP, uh, which was on initial records. And uh, they had been doing it for a couple of years and they were really, really professional dudes. And we, you know, it was fun to watch them and sort of glean a little bit from their experience and be like, oh, wow, they are not ashamed to go up to the promoter at the end of the show and be like, where's our money? <laughs> you know, I was like, that's cool. You know what I mean? Uh, they're not, you know, they know how to get from point A to point B. Wow, they booked a hotel. We're just begging to sleep on floors. Damn, these guys have it together. It's funny how you pick up those little things from the other bands. Like, I, I remember being on tour with this band, and they had a sound tech who set up all the pedals and everything, and I watched how he did it. And then I would I would replicate the same setup when I was playing a show, like taping the, the chords to the pedal and everything. This was before, like, you know, you could buy a pedal train pedal board anywhere. No, that, that was, a, I mean, all those little tricks, like, you know, um, God. I mean, what a godsend when people discovered tuners. Yeah. You know, the, the audience didn't have to hear you go bing, bing, you know, um, that was a, what a wonderful thing. And all those little pro tips. Oh, if I put gaffer tape down on the edge of my, on my cord, it, I won't pull out the cord when I jump around like an idiot. Cool. I'm going to do that. You know, all those stupid little tricks that you learn, you know, it's not like there's a book and you can't see it on YouTube. So you just, you're just out there and you suddenly do it. You know, you see somebody else do it and you go, I'm going to do that. Did you start asking promoters for money? <laughs> um yeah yeah well we started it's an interesting thing in the punk rock world because the, you know the, the definition they, they don't understand the definition of the world word guarantee yeah <laughs> like we had an 80 dollar guarantee it's not a lot of money but you guaranteed us 80 dollars we drove nine hours we played it's not my fault you didn't promote this show very well you didn't make a flyer you're telling me you didn't make a flyer and there's five people here. We are going to go to the ATM and you are going to get $80 and give it to us. You know, and, and it wasn't to be an asshole to the promoters, but it was just like, you also didn't want to be an asshole to your bandmates. You're like, okay, well, look, I don't want to get fucked over and I'm sorry you didn't do your job or you think it's punk rock to not pay me, you know, but and I'm sure you're doing good work here promoting the scene and everything in your neck of the woods, but, but you can't do it at my expense. Um, and so that, that was, that was something to learn early on, you know, and that's the, that's the whole thing is like when you go, you know, when you're traveling, like it's, it's fucking work, man. It's beautiful work. It's great to travel, especially when you're younger and you get to see all these things and you want to be in the moment and you want to be appreciative, uh, appreciative of it, but you also don't want to completely let yourself get fucked over and be like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. You can only give us seven bucks. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> you, know? you know, thanks for the opportunity to play to those five people. Yeah, but being assertive is hard for me. It's really hard for especially anybody in the punk scene because we're all we're all completely socially inept. That's why we're in that scene. Yeah, Anthony and I had like an experience like that where we booked that place that Trihampton YMCA like right near our house and we we're like this is going to be great. We booked a couple bands and Anthony somehow got the Jazz June. They actually they put a record out on initial as well. And I remember well they were from um like uh, like northern pennsylvania like kutztown kind of area and he was like yo i got them to play i'm like no they're not showing up they showed up and they played and then they asked us for a hundred dollars and we were like oh okay well let's go to the door let's figure out how much money we made because the place was packed and they were like oh we keep a hundred percent of the door like 
that's what happens here. You guys got the book, the place for free. Like you just showed up two days ago and filled out the form. And we're like, Oh, okay. And keep in mind, like Anthony and I are like washing dishes, like, for, like, you know, we're like 15 years old or like, okay. So I like literally emptied out like my Mac account. I was like, Oh, let me go to the Mac machine and get money out. And like, we like put our money together. We're like, we have $87. We're really sorry. And the guys were like, Oh, that's okay. Thanks a lot, guys. You did the right thing. Well done. All right. So we're touring on the bend before the break. How was it back then? Were you just doing the band full time? Were you out on the road all the time? As much as we could be. And we all had jobs that, that sort of facilitated that. So, you know, when I first got out of college, I worked in a provincial French restaurant. I started washing dishes, you know, but I learned to cook on the line but that became something that, you know, you needed to dedicate some time to. And so when I moved to Boston, I got a job at a burrito joint, Roland Burritos, a place called The Big Burrito. And it was all musicians. And the guy that owned it, whose name was Michael Rubin, was really cool. And he basically was like, you want to take off three weeks and go on tour? Cool. You'll have a job when you come back. You know, you want to work now that you're back and you have no money. You want to work uh, every day for the next 10 days? Cool. Um, and he would facilitate us being, you know, he, he thought the place would do better if the people that worked there was happy and, and were happy and he was correct. And so we would all work any job that, you know, that we could leave at the drop of a hat, you know, so I've worked a lot of different jobs. Uh, you know, Garrison was probably on tour uh, probably four, four to five months a year, although not straight, it would be like a week here and then a week off and then like two days and then like three weeks. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we weren't, we were doing the band full time, but not paying the bills with it. I've never actually been in a band to pay th that paid the bills other than when I joined my friend's band that were on Geffen Records. Other than that, everything has been, you know, music has always been the job I pay to have. Was that uh, Instruction? Yes. Uh, Joseph, I heard that uh, Instruction toured with Korn. And uh, a recurring theme on this show is we try to bring up Korn in every episode possible. So you have to tell us about that. Our experience with Korn is we, so we went out on one of those bigger tours with Korn. So it was Korn, Breaking Benjamin... Skindred and Instruction, and there was probably some other band. Chevelle, I think, was on that tour too. The Corn guys, they, you know, there's five of them. They have five separate buses. I guess they don't like each other very much. I don't know. Um, Whoa. What year was this? This was, um, oh, five, oh, six. Ah, yeah. They hit in 99, so they were probably sick of each other by then. Yeah. I wasn't too impressed, you know, by them as, as folks. You know, no one came up and said hi introduce themselves whereas i think i don't know you've probably had other people say it, the band papa roach they are the coolest nicest people on the planet yeah, they're really amazing yeah they are the sweetest most hard-working diligent coolest people you could hope to meet that makes me feel so good yeah <laughs> like that's 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 heartwarming it's disappointing to me when you're working with someone or in close quarters with someone and i experienced this where they won't they will pretend you don't even exist and it's like I see you every night. You can't look at me and say hello. Like, we don't have to be friends, but you can act like a human being. Yeah, so so in, in reference to corn, <laughs> this is like all stuff you shouldn't say. But I mean, like, Fieldy, for example, like when you walk down, if you're walking, like if you're he's coming one way and you're going the other way down a hallway, um, and I think he might just have some issues, he sees you and he faces the wall until you pass. No uh, way. Yeah, he's just not... You know, this is the normal thing. Like, hey, man, how you doing? That's not in his vocabulary. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I think the more insulated you get, the weirder you get in some cases, too. Like, you, you just can't deal with the public anymore. 
Or you also get people that, uh, without naming names, uh, that don't know how to com- have a conversation that isn't an interview. So, uh. you know what I mean? Where, where you just want to be like, oh, hey, it's nice to meet you. I'm so-and-so. So, you know, what's it like? And, and they're you know, relatively famous, but they don't know how to stop talking or how to listen or have that, have that, have that tennis game that is a conversation where, we, you know, it's, and now it's your turn and the ball goes back to you. And that you see that sometimes. Uh, and, and that's just, again, you gotta, you gotta take it with a grain of salt because how old was that person when they got famous? How, how, um, socially inept are they? And, and we think, uh, because people are successful or they made some money that maybe they're in a, um, that they have it together, quote unquote, but, but they probably are just like a scared, lost little kid inside. And, and, and you see it sometimes and, and it's really glaring when you see it. I actually, I was going to say, this is the opposite of that. I uh-huh. worked at Princeton University for a number of years. And My brother went to Princeton. Nice. Get out, really? What did he yeah. study? He studied um, chemical engineering. Jesus. I, I'm, I'm always in awe. When people do material sciences, chemical engineering, or uh, biology, I'm always like, really? Here? Like, it's, the, the, it's literally the most, you have the most competitive class of people. Yeah. And it's just cutthroat. And it's, yeah. it's literally people sleeping in the library. Like, uh-huh. But um, I went to Wawa one day to go get coffee, and I met this guy. He was wearing a Hawaii shirt, and I was like, hey, how you doing? What's up? How are you? Like, oh, we, are you from Hawaii? And he's like, actually, yeah, I was born in Hawaii. He started telling me his whole life story. He shakes my hand, and he goes, my name's Jeff Nunakawa. I'm a professor of English here. And I was like, I, I work in the department where I, I do – outreach with the at-risk kids in trenton and he's like that's phenomenal hey let's go like where are you going right now and i was like i was gonna go back to my office he's like no come to my office hang out with me he was so sweet and i was like this guy is literally like has written like eight books like he's well published and he is the nicest most down-to-earth person like all came into my office came like come into my office sit down with me let's have a conversation that's so great that's so great because you know what, what's amazing about that is is, is, is it's so inspiring to you personally, right? And he he probably has no idea. He's just like, oh yeah, he was a nice person when I met that math teacher, but he doesn't know the, the ripple effect, right? The, the, how impactful that is to you, and and you may never know how impactful you are to other people, but but that stuff that 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 um, having space and patience and um, grace towards other people is infectious. And when people treat you like that, you want to, you want to be that person in someone else's life too. Um, and that's so, why the hell else are we here? Right. That's so great. Where, where does it all lead? I mean, we have, a, we've put out a couple LPs. We're working with Kurt Ballou. We're to produce records. We're, we're touring. How, how does it all come to an end and why? We'd achieved a lot, right? So we, so, um, making a record with Brian McTurnan and making a record with Kurt Ballou were, fairly achievable goals because they were in our in our scene and we were pals right and then um stepping out of that to make a record with jay robbins which uh, we made a record called be a criminal with him that was a big step wow we got to work with him and we also got to work with andrew schneider um who was a sort of local boston rock luminary as well he did a lot of stuff for hydrahead and so on the recording level we learned a lot from those experiences and then on the touring level we were one of those bands that probably because our our genesis was less organic, um, and, and meaning that we didn't play the New England scene for five years and then get signed. We played for a couple months and then got signed to an international label. Um, we 
we were the kind of band that had 20 kids in every city that liked us. We didn't have any city that had 200 kids. So especially in the States. So we toured a lot and, and played a lot. We got really good at playing to next to nobody. You know, there'd be a few people there and they'd be really into it, but not enough for you to feel like your um, star was rising. Um, and then we'd, we'd done some touring in Europe and the, the reaction that we got in Germany and Italy and the UK was really, really powerful and much bigger. And there were people at shows a lot of people and they were stage diving and having a good time and and partying with you afterwards and that was really great and so we did a lot more touring of of what happened was probably after 2000 i think we stopped touring the states or 2001 we only toured europe really uh we do like a week or two in the states if we got a good offer like we would go out with burning airlines or new end original or something but we wouldn't do it ourselves whereas we do like a headlining tour in you know for two months in europe uh and then come back so we did all that the band breaks up for a couple of reasons one is you know it, it's kind of hard to achieve to keep it going to keep stoking the fires when you're watching your peers succeed so much more than you so you know a band like thursday and we're like oh god they got signed to island records yeah yeah wow like they're we're, we're kind of on par, but wow, I guess not. Um, My Chemical Romance, they came out so much after later than us and they got signed. How come nobody wants to sign us? And you start getting jealous and you start getting bitter and you can't help it. And it's a terror, it's cancerous, but it comes out and that's what happens. And that starts to infect your relationship with your pals. And you start being like, you know, we're not, we're not achieving more because your guitar tone is terrible. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it is. Start right? assigning blame. Yeah, exactly. Because, because you can't accept the fact that maybe it's you <laughs> um, or, or whatever, or maybe it's just, maybe it's just not in the cards, you know, like maybe, maybe you've actually gotten more than you deserved and you should be happy with it. Right. You can't, you don't want to accept that. Right. So that starts to infect the band. Now I've already moved down to New York at this point. Those guys are still in Boston. So it's also getting difficult because I'm driving, you know, back and forth once a month, at least, if not more to play shows or to rehearse. And then we'll do these tours. I'm starting to get more involved in the New York scene because I've got friends. My friend Artie is in Aerotype 11 and I've got some like sort of inroads there. And then he's in a band called Instruction um, and they asked me to join. Now they had kind of mentioned it and Garrison was kind of breaking up anyways. uh, And then it didn't come to fruition. Uh, And then Garrison sort of imploded in the, I guess, New Year's Eve of 2002 or 2003 was our last show that I was involved in. They did, they did a couple of shows in, in Japan without me. Uh, that was the last show that I was involved in. And then a few months, maybe three months later, you know, Artie calls me and is like, hey man, you, you want to audition for the band and, and join us? You, you'll get a paycheck. And I was like, well, okay, sure. And it was great because I had a, um, it was interesting to, to take all the stress off because, you know, in Garrison, I was doing everything. I was, it was helping to book the shows. I was the label contact. I was the person, the go-to guy, right? And, you know, everybody needs like sort of a, a director or, a, a you know, the whip cracker. And that's what I was. Um, and then I joined this band where I'm not doing anything. Like I'm just, I just play guitar. I show up and play guitar and sing back and vocals. I don't, I don't even know the label people. You know, they, they're, they're, there's management. We have a day-to-day manager and a regular manager. I don't book plane tickets. They take care of that. Cool. They take care of the hotels. We have a roadie. I don't have to, I don't have to change my own guitar strings anymore. 
wow, okay, that's weird. Okay, cool. I don't care. Fine. So that was a real, um, you know, 180 from what I was used to. And at the same time, I started a band called Gay for Johnny Depp with the singer with Artie because uh, I wanted something that I was in complete control of. So I was able to do that and be in complete control of that while in instruction, I was just a foil. I just played a part. And I think because of my theater background, I was happily able to do that. I was like, yeah, I'm a supporting actor in this one. I do not, I'm not driving the bus. It's your bus, buddy. Whereas in Gay for Johnny Depp, I was like, this is my bus. You're on it. You know, so, so that's how I was, I was, and I really like that in different bands. I like, you know, d- being, defining the roles early on and then working within the parameters. Yeah, that's great to be able to have that sense. Because when I was young, I wanted to do everything all the time. And I didn't realize, oh, I could have a band where I'm just the bass player. And then I could do my own thing where I'm doing this and that. And yeah, and I've been in that situation where, I mean, how do you deal with those feelings uh, that you had in Garrison when, because I've been in that situation where you're like, what the hell are we doing wrong? Like, why is this band getting this tour? And why is this band getting signed here? And it's like, how do you deal with those feelings? It's hard. And especially if you're drinking a lot, it gets really bad, um, which I really was um, for too long. And it just starts to go dark places, you know, and you're like, oh, why am I not? It's really, it's really self-pitying, stupid behavior, but, but you, you go there and, and you, you know, and, and it's not a healthy place to be. And, uh, if, if you're lucky enough, you get out of it and you, you, you slap yourself and you're like, wow, what am I? I got to be more appreciative of what I have had and what I have experienced and, and what I can continue to experience. You know, I, I'm so I'm 47. I've got some music right now. I could get on stage every night, uh, you know, that I'm allowed to play a show somewhere. And uh, once shows are happening again, really, and, you know, feel, oh, man, I should be playing Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I mean, what a way to, that's a horrible way to live, horrible way to die. I think you also have to have an honest conversation with yourself about what are you envious of? You know, um, like how many, how many people do you do need to need to like you yeah. uh, need to buy your record and, and be at your show for you to be happy. And, and, and that's a constantly moving scale because I guarantee you that, you know, uh, the guys in Appleseed cast wish they were as big as Jimmy Eat world. And I guarantee you Jimmy Eat world wishes they were as big as the Foo fighters. And it just, it's never ending because you know, it's like how many people need to know, know your name for you to be famous. At, at what point are you happy? And it, there is no answer to that because it never ends. And so, and again, a lifestyle, you know, my friends, uh, you know, who have been, you know, multi-platinum selling records, they have to tour at the same age that I am now. They have to tour 10 months out of the year just to make ends meet. That sounds horrible. You know, that I, I don't, I would have loved that when I was in my twenties, but I don't want it now. And, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in a situation now where I'm, I'm fortunate where, you know, I can provide for my family and still make records and still play shows without music does not have to be my bread and butter. I don't have to make money at music. Um, therefore I can make music like I wanted to in high school (laughs) because I wasn't thinking about money then not thinking about money now. If nobody buys it, cool. I still made a great record. I'm happy with it. We've got a vinyl reissue of the Ben before the break coming up. Tell us about your relationship with iodine recordings and how that came about. Yeah, I've known Casey forever. He came to that. Remember, I was talking about that that game face get up kids garrison show. I think that's yes. the show we first met at. He came to that show. He was like, "I'm starting a record label," uh, you know, and we were in talks with the Revelation. I was like, "Cool, cool, dude." 
And he's just like, I want to put out a comp. You want to be on it? And I was like, of course. Yeah, we'll be on your comp. And it was a thing called Ghost in the Gears. And so it was Converge and Cave In. And that was the first release they did, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he was, he was just a musician in the scene and, and, and very, um, very much of a go-getter and, uh, and a really sweet, sweet guy. And, you know, Casey and I just hit it off we'd pal around and, um, go get coffee together at Harold's, uh, and far too many cream cheese bagels. Um, <laughs> and then he started iodine and he wanted to put out, uh, an EP. We wanted to put out an EP with him called the model when we were still signed to revelation records. And so we did. And that was really fun. And, but um, we were starting to, the cracks were starting to show as far as the band was concerned. And he, that was also right at, I think we're looking at 02, 03, where people were, Napster was coming up and people were burning CDs. You know, you, you'd play a show and hang out at somebody's house afterwards and they'd have a burned copy of your CD. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, I love your band. And you'd be like... I would love it if you bought that record, um, <laughs> but I'm glad you're listening to it. Um, and anyway, so, so Casey and I, you know, we are always pals. And then he stopped iodine in, in I want to say, Oh, four, Oh five. He would be able to tell you better than me. And he just went and became like a forest ranger. He just left him off grid. Um, and then, you know, 20 some odd years later or a little less than 20, he calls me and he's like, Hey, I, I want to do something again. I'm back. I'm doing this. And I'm like, let's do it. Sounds fun. You know, he, he mentioned a couple different ideas and, you know, we go back and forth a lot. We, uh, we talk a couple times a week, you know, he wanted to put out the Garrison stuff because he, he was always a fan of the band. Uh, and he called revelation and said, look, you know, you don't have any plans of putting this out on vinyl. Is you cool if I do? And Jordan was like, yeah, sure. Cause Jordan's going to put out vinyl, but he's just going to do you know, all the youth of today and gorilla biscuits things because those are his biggest records, right? It doesn't, it's not, it's small potatoes for revelation to press 500 copies of a garrison record. Whereas for iodine, it's great because not only can he do it and sell the records, um, he can, he can give it the love, uh, and attention that we think it deserves, which is nice, you know? And it's like, it's like a, you know, in some ways having another band member because he's so excited about it. And it's shocking sometimes. I'm like, ah, you're more excited about this band than I am. (laughs) Um, uh, and he's great. And so, yeah, so we're putting out a reissue, uh, on really pretty colored vinyl, uh, with some gorgeous artwork. The tracks have been remastered. Um, and yeah, that'll be coming out September 24th, same day as my other band is putting out a record. Folks, we want to pre-order that record. There might be some delays with pressing and, uh, cause they're all the vinyl shops are backed up. So it could be November too. Oh yeah, everything's going to get delayed, but but you need to pre-order it anyways because the the sales are still going through. Yeah. So so I mean, the nice thing about I guess the way that things work now is I mean I think it sold about three hundred and sixty copies within a couple hours, which made me feel great that people still cared. Uh, and then those copies, you know, and that was before there was that was just because of an email blast and an Instagram thing. And so you know, as people some some press picks up on it and writes about it i'm sure they'll they'll sell out pretty quickly or i hope they will um and uh yeah it's going to be that's just the model now for everybody you're going to pre-order the record you're going to get the link you're going to be able to listen to your music but you won't get the physical copy until you get the physical copy yeah whenever (laughs) that is whenever that is because you know they've got to press all those smashing pumpkins records (laughs) you know 
they've got uh, other bigger fish to fry. How does it feel to have this record coming back, to have it out now on vinyl? I mean, have people contacted you over the years and said, oh, this record's really important to me? Do you have a, a bunch of old feelings coming back up, the, this thing seeing the light of day again? Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly humbling. I've had a few people mention, you know, that it was important to them, but, you know, when a record, when when there's the focus of it being reissued uh, and reissued well, um, yeah, you get a lot of people coming out of the woodwork and being like, oh, that record was really important to me or, you know, oh, God, hey, remember we played some shows together? And and more than anything, it's reconnect, reconnected me with the, the old bandmates, you know, I mean, we got it once a, every two weeks, we did a big Zoom call going and talk to each other. Uh, and it's been great. It's been great to reconnect because if it wasn't for this happening, I don't know if I would be talking to them. Um, or if I would be talking to them and, and trading old stories and looking at old pictures and talking about playing this show. I mean, it's great. I mean, you know, people I had experiences with decades ago. I mean, and, and the fact that the record is decades old and people want to listen to it. Fuck, man, that is so humbling. That is, I mean, you know, talk right there about, you know, fortunate that's wonderful. That, that's that's really cool. I, I couldn't be more happy. Where do things stand with Garrison nowadays? Are you guys together? Are you defunct? Or do we have any plans for the future after this record comes out? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what form it'll take. You know, uh, there's talk of of um, of maybe uh, you know because there's a lot of back material about maybe re-releasing some of the other material with iodine. We're figuring that out. Yeah, I think I think you know, if, as you know, the world gets out of the pandemic and, and we all have other projects. I think we've been talking about maybe playing a Garrison show. I think that'd be a cool time. I think it'd be fun. Um, I don't know. We don't have any plans for when or where, but you know, I think those guys might start practicing soon. <laughs> <laughs> they all live in Boston still, so I don't. You know, it's easier for them to to get together. Whereas I I live you know still in New York State, so I'll just drive over at some point and be like, all right, guys, give me a guitar, let's play. <laughs> where in New York do you live? Uh, right. Well, I lived in Brooklyn for 20 years and then uh, we just moved up to Saratoga Springs. So I live up in Saratoga Springs right now. Oh, nice. I'm in Brooklyn now. So, Oh, nice. Whereabouts in Brooklyn? Williamsburg. I lived in Williamsburg from 01 to when my house burned down in 2012 and then we lived in Clinton Hill. Um, oh, man. But yeah, um, Williamsburg's a hoot. My, my, I have a wine shop in Williamsburg. My, um, that's how I, that's my how I make my bread and butter. I have a, a wine shop on the corner of North 8th and Berry. Oh, yeah. Yep. It's over right next to Jordan Jack's across the street from that restaurant, Oregano. Um, and so I'm a big wine aficionado and I still go down to the city every five or six weeks and taste a bunch of wines and write their descriptions and do the buying and all that fun stuff. And so that's my shop. If you're bored, pop in. That's amazing. You own a wine shop. Did you have any New York City mob guys trying to come in to, to take a piece, or is that the old days? <laughs> um, that is the old days, but all of the restrictions that apply to um, the liquor, liquor stores with the State Liquor Authority are in place because of the mob, because it was the easiest way to launder money. So, you know, you can only own one liquor store, right? So, so that's why there's no chain liquor stores uh, in New York State. So... If I wanted to own another liquor store, it would have to be in my wife's name. And, you know, I was fingerprinted by the FBI. You know, uh, they wanted six years worth of bank statements. Having, having, a, <laughs> having an Italian last name didn't help. Um, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't getting money from my parents, but they wanted three years of bank statements from my parents as well, just oh to make God. sure. You know, it's pretty, yeah, it's, it's, it's no joke. 
But once you're established, now that 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 continued well in Williamsburg, it would have been the Polish mob that used to come by, but um, uh, not anymore. That that's they've got bigger fish to fry, and maybe they bother some people in Greenpoint, but not in Williamsburg. Well, you've got a new band too now, Judas Knife. I've got two new bands, folks. Judas Knife has three singles out on Spotify right now. We want to go listen to those. So Judas Knife um, is myself and uh, a gentleman named Drew Thomas, who was the drummer for, well, Youth of Today and Bold, but more importantly, Into Another in the 90s. And um, he's he was also in a great band with Walter Schreifels from Quicksand called Dead Heavens, which are kind of more psych rock stuff. Um, anyways, he's a fantastic collaborator. And so Judas Knife is he and I uh, for the record. And then we have some some people in it now to flesh out the band. And we're playing our first show uh, September 19th at St. Vitus. And, and the record comes out same day, September 24th, as the Garrison record. Uh, and that record's on Translation Lost Records, which is more of a metal label. Uh, we're not a metal band, but we're definitely a darker sounding, I would say it's kind of a cross between shellac and Depeche Mode. And then I'm in another band um, called Her Heads on Fire, which I guess is definitely going to be more this, more the um, people that liked Garrison stuff. It's, it's, it's faster uh, guitar rock. And that's myself... And uh, this, this guy, Jeff Dean, who was a band called The Bomb from Chicago. Rodrigo plays bass. He was in Saves the Day. And then um, the drummer is a guy named Jeff Genstrom. And he, he was in Small Brown Bike and uh, Lepesh. He's just, he's great. Uh, so that's that's a really fun band. And because we're playing music that we, <laughs> we've we all know, known how to do uh, for the last couple decades, we just get together. I and mean, we had three practices and then made a record. You know, it's just like, yeah, cool, great. Um, is this where it goes? Yeah, that's where it goes. You know, it's very, we're all on the same page with that band. So that's, re- that's a very fun, effortless band for me. Whereas Judas Knife is more of like a, you know, I'm composing, I'm working, I'm pushing myself. And Judas Knife has a, your first show coming up, right? At St. Vitus. Correct. On September 19th with our friends in Lovelorn. Yeah, yeah. Lovelorn. So Lovelorn, uh, when they were in a band called Creepoid, yes. toured with Dead Heavens. And so they know Drew. And so they got in touch with us and said, hey, we're playing a show. Do you guys you know, want to be the main support? And we're like, of course, that's perfect timing. So that'll be our record release show. Yeah, so it sounds like you've never wavered with being involved with music over the years. Well, I took a, I took a five-year break with the kids. You know, it, the, having the children was all-encompassing. And so I, I was still writing music in my head. But other than playing, um, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon to them at night, I wasn't playing music. <laughs> so I did take a break. Uh, I also had... Um, uh, a cancerous tumor removed. Uh, and when it was removed, my larynx was paralyzed for about eight months. So I didn't have a voice for about eight months. And it took a long time, a lot longer than eight months to sort of get the vocal muscles uh, in tune and my vocal cords back to a um, place where I can I can sing again. How do you get by for eight months without a voice? You, you type a lot of things into your notes app on your phone and show it to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was very strange. Was it a relief at all? I, I'm thinking of if I had to deal with that and if I had to not talk to anybody for eight months, I'd be somewhat relieved. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was more aggravating than relieving. Um, yeah, that would probably be the reality. Well, the thing, the thing about it is, you know, we didn't know if it was going to come back. Yeah. And, and I was okay with it. You know, I wasn't going to cry about it because, you know, I, I'd survived cancer. So fuck it. Like, you know, <laughs> losing your voice. And being alive is a lot better than having your voice and being dead. So, so it was a drag, but I also wasn't going to dwell on it. That said, 
I didn't, you know, singing was always the thing. Singing is the most intimate uh, way that I can make music. I like playing guitar. Um, I like playing bass. I like playing keyboards. I like crafting sounds. But the my own voice and singing and, and the, the air moving over my vocal cords from my lungs out of my mouth into a microphone is the most intimate way uh, with the words I've written that I can express myself. Um, and so I remember the, the exact moment that I realized my voice was coming back. I was at my wine shop and uh, REM's Green Record was on the radio and I started singing along to something just because I, I'd known the record for so long and I started singing along and I was actually hitting the notes and I just went in the back and I wept for a while because I didn't, I don't think until that moment I'd realized or I hadn't allowed myself to realize how much I missed having a voice. Um, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. So it was, I'm very, very happy to have a voice again. Oh yeah. I'm so glad you had a great recovery there. And wow, that's an, that's an incredible moment. I mean, did they say that you might never have a voice again? Was that a possibility? Yeah, it was a possibility. I mean, luckily they didn't have to snip the nerve. They just had to pinch it and put it out of the way. But um, when they pinched it, it was damaged pretty bad. And and nerve, the healing of nerves is a very long process. So, you know, maybe maybe it would not come back at all. Maybe it would come back partially. You know, maybe it'd sound like Tom Waits for the rest of my life. Um, you know, it, it, we just didn't know. And then it's pretty much made, you know, as far as I can tell, a full recovery. I mean, I'm sure you had a lot of... Uh mental anguish during the, the recovery period what were you thinking were you like oh man well I, maybe i can just play guitar or maybe i just won't sing anymore what what kind of thoughts were going through your head well i i didn't think about it too much you know because i was in the midst of being a dad so because i'd taken the time off luckily i didn't have the band or anything you know to, to tell hey guys i can't make it to band practice or whatever i can't sing right now because i was so embroiled in being a father so I guess kind of, I just took, I, I wrote a lot of the Judas Knife record in my head while trying to put my children to sleep. Um, one of my children has real, you know, like I was saying, difficult time sleeping. And so even putting him down when and he, he can't self-soothe. Um, and so, you know, I would just I'd pick him up and put him back into his bed and sit in the dark. And then five minutes later, he'd get up and I'd pick him up and put him back in his bed and sit in the dark. And that would be like, for three hours every night um, for a good year and a half to two years. And so what do you do with that time? You know, I can't look at my phone. <laughs> um, I can't, I can't listen to music. I'm just sitting quietly. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to start composing in my head. And so I would start to write the music in my head. And, and I think that that experience colors the sound of that record. That's a lot of time I've had. My daughter can self-soothe, but um, she, for a long period of time, was sharing a crib Like because they're twins. They shared the crib for the first three or four months. Then they moved to separate cribs. Um, but slight noises would wake her up. So it was constant. Um, and like you said, it, it's easier to it's easier to sit there and just wait. Because you know whatever is about to happen is is mere moments away. Like you, you know, getting back in bed, getting comfortable, falling asleep, you're wasting your time. So I, I learned to sleep sitting up for a while. And one of the things you do is you really do have those moments where you just sit and you get very contemplative. You sit and think about life. What does this mean? Why am I here? 
it's hard to kind of put your finger on it, but uh, what I am really kind of in awe of is that you were able to remember anything from that time. I remember thoughts flashing through my head and then like the wind just going away, but you were able to retain that and compose. <laughs> like that's, that's an unbelievable skill. If you know, that, that skill probably comes from my theater background. I studied theater in college and obviously I'd done it, you know, for years in high school and before that. So having to learn lines and having to memorize scenes, uh, I think that, that any ability to, to remember, uh, things in a, in a structural form probably comes from, from having honed that when I was younger. But I think, you know, that's when there's so much distraction in the world now. And great ideas sometimes come when you're bored out of your mind. You know, great ideas come, be it a business idea, be it, be it music, be it theater, be it film, be it, I don't know, building a chair, whatever. It comes when you're sitting in a laundromat waiting for your clothes to dry and you don't have a cell phone to look at. You're just watching the clothes go around and around and you're bored. And so your mind, your imagination has to create something to just make life more interesting. We've lost that. We've lost that ability to kind of get, you get lost in your own thoughts. Like mm-hmm. I, I notice it even with my kids when they're bored, they're like, Oh, can I watch something now? I'm like, can't you play outside? <laughs> like, can't, can't you sit and think or draw? now my one daughter will sit and draw for hours at a time. Like she'll sit, draw with, or, or play with Play-Doh. But my other kid is just, she's restless. Like she just needs to be engaged all the time or she's causing trouble. <laughs> she's doing something. We, and we like, early on had a moment where, you know, we had a, we got out of the city and we went up to this little um, sort of farmhouse in Accord and there was a radio there. There's no TV and there were maybe 10 toys for the kids. And um, we didn't even have any books or anything. And there was no internet service, right? So, you know, we could have our phones to look at the time. That was about it. And after about three days, you know, uh, we were just so happy because you're forced to be in the moment. And the kids, they don't need more than 10 toys. They have, they have an imagination and they can figure out a thousand different ways to play with those 10 toys. And you can come up with a thousand different ways to engage with them or a thousand different ways to, you know, to sit in a room with two couches and a wood-burning stove and three toys and listen to the radio. And maybe you have a dance party. You know, or, or maybe you, and, and whatever it is, or maybe you talk about, you know, the wonder of a sunset or the painting or the beauty of all these things. And that's, that's an incredibly enriching um, experience that I think we haven't, lo- we've, we've lost it if we allow ourselves to. We can turn these things off. We can, we can do that. It's just you need the discipline to do it. So, gentlemen, let's recap. Now, we've got the Bend Before the Break vinyl reissue coming up on Iodine Recordings. September 24th. Yes. So September 24th, you'll be able to download it. Vinyl is coming sometime in November. So we're looking forward to that. And there may be more Garrison news in the future, it sounds like. Uh, Absolutely. We're excited about that. We've got Judas Knife. They have three singles out now, and they've got their first show coming up September 19th at St. Vitus. We want to check that out. Yes? Absolutely. That's going to be fun. We've got Her Heads on Fire. I think we have a couple split seven inches and we're figuring out where the LP is going to be, but you'll hear about it soon enough. Yes. So search this out online. Use that Google search bar. I mean, come on, let's do this thing.
There you have it, folks. Joseph Grillo. Excellent conversation. Many good stories. I'm excited about the Garrison vinyl reissue coming up. Judas Knife is really good. I was listening to that earlier today. That was a perfect description. What did he say? Depeche Mode meets... Oh, shellac. Yes. Yeah. It was good. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a lot going on. A wine store? Twins? How does he do it all? I don't... My thing is, like, <sighs> navigating liquor licenses in the state of New York is a nightmare. Yeah. Any, anywhere it's a nightmare. In other news, Tommy, tell, tell the people about your dream. Oh, Lord. Okay, so <laughs> here's what happened. I went to bed. Shit, what was this? Thursday night, I went to bed. Circus Survive was on this. In my dream, the entire band was on the show. We were going to get ready, and this was in, like, a professional studio, so it has, like, monitors and, like, a console, and everybody has, like, the, the microphones that, like, hang down from the ceiling that you can adjust and shit, and... Anthony gets there and texts me and says, hey, can you help me get stuff out of the car? And I said, of course. And I get out there, and lo and behold, we get shithouse, like really bad. Like he hands me a bottle of something. We start drinking it, and I'm like crap on your neighbor's lawn type drunk. Like I am <laughs> fucking out of my mind. And I fall asleep on the console. Like I literally – in the middle of the conversation while we are having – like you and Brendan are talking about like guitar pedals, I'm like – head on the console, knock the fuck out. I wake up the next day, you call me and I decline your call with the, as you say, <laughs> typical Costanza response, <laughs> which is they can't fire me. If I don't pick up the phone, <laughs> if I don't pick up the phone call, they can't say you're fired. And if I'm not f picking up the phone call, therefore, I am not fired. So I still have a job. So I'm constantly trying to avoid your phone call. That was my dream was me like ducking your phone calls. And, uh, was I going to fire you in the dream? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. You were so mad. You were like, you made a big point of like, Tommy, a constant theme in this show we go back to is like my sobriety and you get fucked up on the air not only with <laughs> like when you're supposed to be talking, but with the one of the people we should really be focusing on in the group that has, you know, a direct connection with all of us. Like we grew up with Colin. We grew up with Anthony. Like we should be having these conversations. So essentially the, the entire dream amounted to you trying to wrangle everybody else while Anthony and I are passed out. So somewhere in your subconscious, you're afraid that I'm going to fire you from the show. Well, I mean, I don't get paid, so you can't really <laughs> – this is my job to quit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I, I don't know if you're going to fire me, but I always feel like – I feel like I'm going to do something – maybe it's not like insane, like get drunk as fuck and like fall asleep, right? Yeah. But it's something like – you know, I say something that's not great and then like you don't catch it during the edit and then like – because Keith has saved my ass a thousand times with stuff I've said on here that I'm like unknowingly being like, oh, this is not the smartest thing to say, like being the position I'm in. And, uh, you know, he'll text me sometimes and be like, you know, I cut that part about X. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> like, I forgot. Well, I said yeah, let, let me let me get in on this now. 
I wouldn't care about sobriety and all that stuff. Like, that's not what I would get mad at. The only time I get mad is when something impedes in my ability to get the show recorded. That's why we had the little tift about the, the technical difficulties a oh, long time ago. Oh, my God. And that Remember was, that? Oh, my God. Yeah, with my microphone, that was like uh, eBay janky nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely remember. <laughs> as long as we can do the show and get it recorded, I'm not going to have any problem. I think that's, you know what? Going back, that's the maddest I've ever been at you. When? When you were like, yo, you have to get a new microphone. And I was oh, like, oh, you are mad at me? Oh, yeah. Oh. I wasn't even, no, let me rephrase that. I was just upset because I'm like, look, I'm doing my best. I got what you asked me to get. Like, you know me. Like, No, I'm, but you didn't. That was the beef. Okay. Well, I got something. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do it. <laughs> oh. I eventually got what you asked me to get. Christ, like, I don't know what you want from me. So I think with that one, I, I was so upset, I think, because I'm not used to us being even, like, a little bit. Like, our entire relationship is based around jokes and funny stuff and, you know. Yeah, and now we're tied into this show. Glint, like, very, very fleeting moments of seriousness. Like, that's <laughs> our entire relationship. So, like, when... And that's a crazy part of this entire podcast is that it's our relationship on display. This is what we have done for the last 20 some odd years. Like this is what we've done is hang out with each other and talk shit. And I, I'll be honest, I still struggle with, and Keith knows this as someone that edits the show, how to like pull myself back or not say what I th I'm thinking in the moment. Like, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Like there's no me outside the show and then me inside the show. Like I, I, I don't have a persona and I don't, I don't do that well. So something I'm working on and something I'm struggling. Tommy and I are fine. Tommy, there's no firing from the show. Sometimes we have to have conversations and well, sometimes, sometimes we have to deal with business now and we never had to do that before. Like That's, we have to have like yeah. serious conversations about the show and, and different stuff. And it's weird because that element never existed in our relationship before, but whatever. I mean, I'm committed to our friendship and I'm committed to us doing this show. So we're going to make it work no matter what. That's it. I think this is the big thing. And we said this in the beginning, the instant this show gets in the way of our friendship, the show is changing. Like it's, it's not, we've been friends for longer than the show has been like, we've been friends for longer than the amount of months the show has been around in terms of years. Yes. Like, so I feel like our friendship is the most important part of this. And that's at the core. Like, I mean, that's what started this whole thing. I, I have a hard time when I see us butting heads about that, but what, Keith always brings to the forefront is the most important thing is that we stay friends and we get to the core of what everybody's really tuning into is like, it's, it's for the fucking music. That's why we're here. Like we're, we're here because we love the same shit. Like we all, we're not listening to this because we're like, Oh, Oh, I, I knew. So no, like we love fucking music. We just fucking love it. it it's, it's everything we, we, you know, based our entire personas around it's the clothes we wear, it's the friends we've kept. Uh, and I think, I think that's a large part of it. In good show news, Tommy, are you ready for this? Let's go. We have far surpassed. 
We have sailed right on past. Twenty thousand downloads of the show. Far surpassed. Jesus. Yes, we sailed right past it. And we've been heard in so many countries. When I look at the map of the show, it's all lit up, all over the place. International, baby, international. How about Bosnia? Has anybody heard us in Bosnia? I'm going to have to double check. Yeah, Africa, the Middle East, Australia, everywhere. Everywhere. So I just want to extend a thank you to everybody who's been with us, everybody who listens to the show, anybody who's listened to the show. We appreciate your continued support. But Tommy, do you know what it's time for? Oh, God. Is this fucking pop culture? God damn it. You got me fucked. It's time for Tommy's favorite segment, the Pop Culture Minute. Okay. And this is where we discuss the hot topics of the day. Tommy. Yeah. Are you ready for the Pop Culture Minute? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never getting rid of this segment. I, I love how much you dislike it. Fucking... it. It brings me so much joy. I, it really does. <laughs> All right. First up on the list, Milk Crate Challenge. This thing is taking the world by storm. Tommy, have you seen the videos on Twitter, on Instagram, everywhere? Oh, yeah. I follow a ton of hood shit on uh, Instagram, like Hood Vines, uh, Hood Hoodville. Culture. Have you ever seen the Instagram account hoodville yes i have they are hilarious dude uh yeah so anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes, so yes i have seen those <laughs> so the milk crate challenge you stack a bunch of milk crates up in a pyramid form and people have to walk from one side to the other it looks terrifying it looks dangerous i haven't seen anybody actually complete it yet have you seen the guy walk to the top finish breaking up a blunt roll it and then walk the fuck down yes Okay, well, that guy... That is that is pure talent. Do you yeah. think you could do it? Oh, my God, no. My balance is terrible. I've always... Like, with skateboarding, I've always been bad at manuals. Like, I, I don't have great balance. I think I could do it, because I'm, I'm tall and thin. I feel like I could get the weight distribution down. But it looks so scary and painful when you fall from, like, three stories up and you land sideways on a crate. Yeah, everybody hits their back. Everybody. Like, there's... You just slam your back into a bunch of milk crates at a really terrible angle. Well, it looks fun. I, I hope to try it one day and uh, end up in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up on the list, OnlyFans. Tommy, OnlyFans will be banning adult content, their bread and butter. Now, from what I read, credit card companies are putting pressure on OnlyFans to ban adult content. They're saying it's legalized prostitution. They're threatening to not approve payments that go through the sites. What do you think of this? What is your personal opinion? I really don't understand OnlyFans other than Mikey Miles has one. <laughs> I knew you were going to say <laughs> that's the only experience. I don't know. I don't get it. Like, I don't. It is a it, platform. Is it TikTok? Is it the. No, it, it's it's like a, it's like a portal for web for videos and picture. So many women are using it to sell pictures and videos of themselves. So the controversy is that it's a, it's an outlet for women to make money and express themselves and offer this content, and now it's being shut down. Okay, phenomenal. Go ahead, shut that down. Somebody else will open up. Yeah, there's money to be made. It's like if somebody wants pictures of people's like gross feet or weird shit like that, yeah, like fucking do it up, bro. Like, and that's what it is. It's I always read about like feet pics and weird stuff that people are into, but 
All right. Well, let me not judge. I read about these things that people are into that uh, maybe I myself do not necessarily partake in. But look, enough with this Puritan nonsense. You know, if if women want to offer that content and if people want to purchase it and it's not breaking any laws, then why not? I have a hard time with it's two consenting adults. Yes. In a transaction that's taxed, right? Like, yes. So then what I, I don't. Uh, is it so it's the pressure from the credit card company saying like you're a pornography site yes or no prostitution they're saying it's prostitution Uh, oh i thought prostitution involved like you actually touch the girl right like i thought that you actually physically had contact with her so this is like a more of a like a voyeuristic kind of thing like where you're just watching someone credit card companies have morals all of a sudden oh yeah of course i mean come on I, I guess I go back to the, the credit card companies. Like, their motive must be they're beholden to someone else, though. Like, they're. That's got to be it. Yeah. Someone in power is upset, I'm sure. Or they're trying to hold women back. I don't know. There's some angle to this that we don't quite see that's not good. Do you think by the time that our kids are older, so like by the time like children that are of this generation are presidents of you know, Visa, MasterCard, whatever. Do you think they'll just be like, shit, like, oh, feetsonly.com. Like, that's like... Nothing will change. Nothing will change. During the hippie generation, everyone was like, yeah, man, once we're in power, everything's gonna be cool, man, and, like, everything will be legal, and, like, everything... And they're worse. They're they're the worst people. They are the worst people in power. No, the right worst now. people. The worst people are that never stopped being hippies. <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> Nothing changes. A, Nothing if, changes. If you have a fish shirt and you're like sixty, like I just, I, I there's very, very little chance I'm going to have a decent conversation with you. All right, last up on the list, Donda, the upcoming Kanye album, Kanye oh, West. I like he has sequestered dude. himself in Mercedes Benz Stadium, and he is living there. Until the album is complete. Okay. How do you feel about Kanye West? I've never been into him. I, I couldn't name more than a couple songs, but I find oh. Kanye the person very entertaining. I really like his music. I really like his music. Do you still listen to the new records too? I haven't after uh, I really like Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. That's a long time ago. Yeah, I like that one. I really like that one. Very ahead of its time. Very cool shit. I really like College Dropout. There's a song on there called Family. It has a super good message to it, which is like, fucking protect your family. Like, the people around you, like, I don't give a fuck if you do some fucked up shit. Like, you're mine. Like, you're part of me. Like, I'm taking care of you. Like, How do you uh, feel about Kanye living in Mercedes-Benz Stadium? Do you feel it is helping him complete the album? I saw that picture. It, this is one thing where I can actually interject a little bit. He had like a cinder block room with like a mattress on the floor. I dig him. Like I really like he is very punk rock to me. Yes. He he seems punk rock and I don't know. I can't even put my finger on exactly why. Like rich punk rock. Yeah. Like he seems like he doesn't give a fuck. Like he legitimately doesn't care. Why move to the stadium though? What's what what's the significance with the stadium? Do you know? If I'm being honest, I feel like he really is kind of a, like a, there might be some type of like mental illness going on yeah. with him. Like he's got like some like 
crazy like egomania kind of thing going on too uh where he thinks like everything he does is like ultra important which it is like i mean people consume it at a pretty good rate but yeah i i i don't know like it's so where is mercedes-benz is where is the actual no i I don't even know i guess it's in la right i I feel like it's in atlanta no i feel like that's that's i feel like that's where the center of all that shit is but like I gravitate towards hip hop that is I've sent it to you before. Like those dudes like heat makers and like that kind of stuff. Like that's the stuff I get to like where I go, I love this. And I think that's very much what Kanye kind of influenced. And Mercedes Benz stadium is in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. I I felt like it was Atlanta. I dig him. Like I dig that he's in the fashion. Like I, I, it's not my bag, but at the same time, like for him, it, it seems like it fits, man. I don't know. Like I, I do like, I like him though. I'm a fan of his antics and there are songs I like, but I, I don't know. I've never listened to a whole Kanye West album. Maybe, maybe that'll happen in the future, but that's it. That's it. Oh, that's Lord. the pop culture minute. I fucking hate that noise. Like I, I can't. We have discussed the hot topics of the day. We are better for having done so. Don't you feel better, Tommy? Slightly. <laughs> I really don't. That uh, that sound bed makes me think of. Uh, remember Entertainment Tonight? No, think Ion Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> with with Kent Brockman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fuck. All right. Yeah. I I, I mean I get it, but it, I I at the same time I don't. What the pop culture minute or Kanye? Kanye, I'm still fixated on that. Like, oh, I, no, Tommy, the pop culture minute's over. I'm we're sorry. We're done. We're done I, pontificating. I, I <laughs> well, we're out of time. We have completed another episode of the Northeast scene, and we are happy to be here with all of you once again. We'll be back next week. And I just want to say thank you again to Joseph Grillo of Garrison for spending time with us tonight on the show. And that's it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time.